It's going to be just a second. I just realized my belt pack is dead. batteries. You can go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Thank you, sir. All right. I know this hasn't seemed like uh, Christmas sermons to us. Uh, typically, uh, you might hear the, the, the reading and the story of Jesus coming into the world. Instead, we're talking about this vice list of sins that Paul gives us um, in 1 Corinthians. But by all means, let's not be confused that Paul is uh, proclaiming the need that we have for Christ. So Christ came into the world to rescue us from these very sins that we've been discussing and looking at. And so, uh, by very, uh, without any apology, I think this is a very helpful Christmas uh, sermon series because it, it reminds us of why we are redeemed. And last week we looked at, um, or two weeks ago, we looked at the kingdom of God and defined that kingdom uh, for you so that we might see the, the side that is redeemed and the side that is unredeemed, the unrighteous. And that's kind of what Paul is laying forth in um, these, these verses for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The purpose is so that he might define for a church in Corinth the struggle that they are having with sin. And he might reveal to them and show them those who truly belong to the, uh, to the church in Christ and those who do not. And so I know for, uh, for us, the greatest gift that we could receive this year at Christmas um, is not a package under the tree. It's that our loved ones, our family and friends, our children even, might come to realize the reality that they don't belong to Christ and they would trust in Him. And so I know that that might be, uh, I know that's my prayer, and I pray that would be your prayer as well as we think about this. And so what better way to define the terms and lay this out forth so that we can understand who truly belongs to the kingdom of God. And Paul gives us uh, some very clear uh, understanding of that as he calls this the, uh, the way in which we might uh, know the inheritance of the kingdom and those who do not inherit the kingdom of God. And so as Jeremy read, Paul says in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he begins to give us ten different uh, sins. These sins are very similar to the Old Testament Ten Commandments as in relationship to our neighbors and in relationship to God. And he wants them to, as he says, do not be deceived. Because we can be deceived into thinking, as the Corinthians did, that we love people so much in the church that we're just going to overlook their sin. And we're just going to overlook those things. But the truth of Christ coming into the world is that He came to make us holy. In glorifying the Father by dying on the cross and rising from, from the grave, He came to redeem a, a, a people for Himself for all eternity. And we as the redeemed of the kingdom of God are that people. And those who practice such sin are not those people. They do not belong to the kingdom of God. They do not inherit it. And I want to be very clear this afternoon, according to 1 John chapter 3, that we are specifically dealing with people who practice these sins. If these uh, personify or summarize your life as, as, as a continual idolater, as a continual uh, person who struggles with sexual immorality, who chooses not to turn away from it. These are the people that we are talking about, not people who have uh, struggled with this in the past, have been redeemed, and therefore they are living in a repentant lifestyle, maybe still struggling with temptation in these ways, but they are turning day by day away from this. 
This is why, as we talked about last week, I was very clear that practicing homosexuals and practicing adulterers cannot belong to the kingdom of God. They cannot. No matter what the world and the culture and the people that we love may say, they cannot belong to the kingdom of God because they are doing the very things that God designed them not to do. And they are choosing to live that way. And so it's very clear that we are talking about, as 1 John says, no one who is born of God practices sin. Because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now John doesn't, he's not preaching perfection there. He's talking about a habitual lifestyle of living in sin. I said it this way before. When we are converted, when we are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, when He causes us to be born again, the darkness no longer appeals to us. That's the change. The struggle is there, but no, we are, our, our mindset is so being renewed and changed that we become, uh, as I would say in a teenage way, grossed out by sin. It, it is detestable to us. Now, I'll be honest with you, church. Last week, those were pretty easy to preach on. I didn't probably step on many people's toes. Probably some of us that uh, face the temptation of immorality in the world. Things we look at on TV, on social media, on our phones. I might have stepped on a few toes. But I promise you today, the Word of God is going to pierce the heart because of the things that Paul covers in this next session. This next section, excuse me. So we're going to look at these today. Again, these are characteristics of people who do not belong to the kingdom of God. They will not be heirs of the kingdom because they live in such a lifestyle of these sins. He started off giving us five. I categorize those as sexual sins. Pornea, they're fornicators. They're idolaters. They're adulterers. They're practicing homosexuals. But verses 10 gives us five more. And the first three in this category that I want to focus on today are about materialism. Materialism. Now, I want to skip thieves for a minute. And I want to talk about covetousness, materialism, the sin of longing and gr- being greedy for the things that we don't have. As you study the Greek language, you come to, f- to discover the richness of God's Word. I would encourage you to learn it. I would encourage you to get a, an app that will give you some clarity because in the word greed, in the word covetousness, however it is translated, the root of that word in the Greek means too much. That's what it means. So to, to be greedy is to desire too much, is to lust after too much. So really we're talking about in these, in these, uh, these lists the lust, the flesh that craves not just sexual sin, but materialism. That that greed is the underlying component that flows from the heart of desiring too much. And greed, if flowing from that heart, is not accepting of God's design and purposes. Just as we looked at the, the, the sin of sexual morality, trying to reconstruct what God had designed and ordained in the world, so when we are greedy and discontent, we are not resting our faith and our hope and our confidence in God's plan and design for us. We're saying, no God, I need more than you've given me at this moment. I need more than, than what, we, uh, what you have designed. And in doing so, we are trampling on the very design of God. Because He's purposed for us to be in this place, to be at this time, to have what we have materially, provisionally. And this, the struggle of sin in our lives is that a person fantasizes about what we don't have. We'll leave this place today 
We'll drive past a vehicle or a home or a building or a job and we will fantasize about those things that we think will satisfy us, that we think will make us content in our life and we know from previous experience, church, that they've never done that. Man, I remember when I got my first iPhone and it had gotten promoted and I mean, I was, you know, I was coming off of a beeper. So, I mean, it was an upgrade. And I got the, the iPhone and I just remember like it was shiny and it was new and it did all these things. And, and then it began to lose its luster when the second version and the third version and the fourth version. And what are we up to? 16? The point is, is that materialism and greed can overwhelm our hearts and it's a, it's a, it's a fantasy of lust. And it's like as parents, when we used to take our kids to the toy store and they'd plop themselves down in the middle of the toy aisle and throw a, a tantrum about the things that they can't have, that greedy heart is in us as well, people. Friends, that greedy heart is in us as adults. And instead, we must live as people who are content with what God has given us. Instead, we end up being like greedy Israel, looking at the kings of other nations and wanting one like them instead of having the God who already is our king, who is already leading us to battle. Luke chapter 12, Jesus deals with this with a crowd of people. Someone in the crowd says to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. And he said to him, Man, who appointed me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, the crowd, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does, this, does his life consist of his possessions. Church, the biggest struggle with greed for us as human beings is that we find our identity in those material possessions. They make us feel like a person. And and that's so contrary to the gospel. Jesus Christ has given his life to redeem us, to bring us from the cesspool of sin into the table, cleans us off, washes us, sits us down, seats us at the table, and feasts with us. And we, and we look back at the dung heap that we came from and, and long for that. We long for what we used to have. And what Jesus is saying is that your life does not consist, you're not defined by your possessions. You can be Jeff Bezos or Jeff living under the bridge. Your identity, if it is in Christ, is found in Christ. That's your worth. That's your value. And so we find and understand when we are consumed with greed, as Jesus continues in this passage, telling the parable of the man who builds the the greater barns and the bigger barns because he's like, I I have all these crops that I have to store. What am I going to do? I'll tear down my barns. I'll build bigger ones and and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have made many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God says to him in this parable, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? The powerful message in this parable is that this man was not only finding his own value and worth in his wealth, but he was literally finding his spiritual salvation in it. His soul was at ease because of what he had laid up for himself on earth instead of using and understanding what God or understanding that God was the source of those things, giving him praise, putting trust in him. And so it defines our heart as idolatrous when we are constantly. uh, lacking thankfulness, discontent, all 
always striving to get more and accumulate more, thinking that in that accumulation we will eat, drink, and be merry, and realizing that our satisfaction can only be in Christ. You and I are not defined by our wealth. Jesus says, your life is more than food and the body more than clothing. So as a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are an heir of the kingdom, then seek contentment in God's design, in his sovereignty and plan. Fight the greed in the temptations of this world. Rest in what he has given you as the Israelites were called to rest in the daily manna that he provided them, showing them his provision, showing him, showing them the abundance of his provision. And allowing that provision to be the reason that you not only trust him, but that you work hard as a means of him providing that provision. Because what I'm not telling you to do is become lazy, which is another sin not on this list. We can swing the pendulum the opposite way. Well, I'm going to work hard and accumulate wealth. Okay, fine, then I'll just sit around and do nothing and trust the Lord. And that's laziness. And the Bible speaks against idleness. No, the sweet spot in the middle is being content and yet working hard for the glory of the Lord because you know that in that way, God has provided for you. So greed is the underlying foundation. Seven and eight is an application of greed. He gives us two in this list in verse 10. One is stealing or theft. And the last one at the end of this list is being a swindler or an extortioner. Both again are applications of a greedy heart. In the same way that lust leads us to sexual sin, greed and idolatry leads us to material sin. In verse 10, the word for theft is klepti, which comes from the root word klepto. You might have heard the word kleptomaniac. A kleptomaniac is actually one who has an urge to steal for no profit or reason. Paul's not talking about that here. Paul is talking about the, the action of stealing for the sake of financial gain. What your greedy heart desires, you go out and you take it from your neighbor. So again, this goes back to what Jesus says is the greatest commandments. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Therefore, you will be content with his plan and purpose for you. But if you don't love him and you're discontent, it will lead you to also not love your neighbor and therefore steal from them. To rob them and take from them, violating their possessions. And of course, greed is not the only reason we steal. Other people steal for laziness. They don't want to work, they just want to take other people's possessions. It's not necessarily greed, it's just their way of surviving. Some people steal for just a lack of faith. And other people steal for entitlement. Oh, I deserve that. I haven't received it, so I'll just go take it. Years ago, I worked in a, a, new, uh, an, excuse me, a National Bank of Commerce. You guys remember those in Memphis? I worked at a National Bank of Commerce when they first started putting them in Kroger's. And we had this young 18-year-old girl that got a job there, and she felt entitled to what was in the safe bound up in dollar bills. And so she began to pocket money from the safe when she felt like no one was looking, even though there were cameras everywhere, and began to walk back to the bathrooms and meet her boyfriend in the Kroger bathrooms and hand him money from the safe. And she went to jail. And I remember her attitude was an attitude of entitlement. 
Well, people have oppressed me and people have abused me and treated me unfairly, so I'm just going to get mine. I'm just going to get what's coming to me. Well, she did get what was coming to her, just in a different way. Because the truth of the matter is, the Lord wants us to be hard workers, to work and, and give our best for His glory to honor Him, not to take from others. And greed will lead to theft. And one form, particularly of theft, that Paul mentions is extortion. The last in this list. It's fraud. It's not just going up and taking something because of a greedy heart. It's being deceptive about it. Some people are brave enough to walk up on your front porch and steal your Amazon packages, right? Other people are going to maybe put on an Amazon outfit and be like, oh, I'll put these packages here. I shouldn't have put these here. I'll go put these in my truck and move on. They're charlatans, they're swindlers. They deceive to cheat and steal because they're greedy and these people don't belong to the kingdom of God. If you're a child of the 90s, you'll remember the R&B duo, Millie Vanilli. Millie Vanilli, if you're unfamiliar, took financial advantage of their fans in the music industry, ended up winning a Grammy in 1990 for Best New Artist, only to find out that they weren't even singing the songs of those albums. They were just the the front men to do the dances and sing the songs, and it turned out that they weren't even the singers. And of course, they had their Grammy rescinded. And we expect that in the world, church, right? Right? 1-800 number pops up on your phone. Most of the time you think somebody's about to try to swindle me. Right? But the truth of the matter is, is that this has permeated the church. This has permeated the church. Where there are people trying to get rich. To pad their wallets and their pockets on the compassion of people in the congregation. And the most likely people in this world today doing that are shepherds that preach prosperity gospel. This is what they're doing. They are so definitive in revealing their evil hearts. They become the very richest people in third world countries as these poor parishioners come up to them And give their last pennies in order to pad their wallets. And they beg and they plead and they ask for more. And oftentimes they get it. Jesus spoke about these extortioners in Mark chapter 12 verse 40. He's speaking about the scribes and the Pharisees who he says devour the widow's houses. And what he means by that is that in that day, the scribes would take advantage of women who had lost their husbands and therefore were living on the accumulated wealth of those husbands. And the scribes would somehow coerce these uh, women to donate and give that money to the synagogue. And in doing so, take advantage of them so that these widows ended up with nothing, therefore they were called, as Jesus said, devouring widows' houses. And it's an evil practice coming from a greedy heart, taking advantage of a person who is seeking to please God by giving to the church. Now listen, this doesn't mean that the church doesn't pay its pastors and should do uh, be faithful to such a thing. But pastors know that greediness is a mark against the characteristics of a faithful pastor. Therefore, Adam and Stuart and I are not in the business getting rich. We're not here to to drive Benzes and have planes and helicopters. We're seeking to serve the church and the Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. 
And so therefore, we understand that those who are extortioners, those who are greedy, those who are guilty of stealing, none of these people reflect the nature of someone who is regenerate and born again because they are not understanding the sovereignty of God, the provision of God, the way in which God works in the world to give us what we need but never what we want. Sometimes he may give us what we want to teach us. It's not what we need. So those are material sins. And the last two I'm going to cover are what I call emotional sins. Emotional sins. The first one being drunkenness. The next type of person who does not inherit the kingdom is the drunkard. And this is a person who is characterized as someone who doesn't show control over the enjoyments of this life. Now we know that Scripture teaches about wine representing joy and representing gladness. We know that wine is represented in the Bible. There's obviously debate and argument as to how, what effectiveness uh, the wine was in the ferment- fermenting process. Was it as alcoholic as it is today? I would argue for a point to say that if they were literally claiming that uh, drunkenness was an option, that there was obviously an intoxicating effect in that, therefore they drank, they were just called not to be drunk. They were called not to overindulge. They were called to have self-control. And the reason that I want, or the question I want to ask you today is why? Why does our lives lead to drunkenness? And the answer is, it's an emotional sin. We drink to drunkenness, not to merriment or enjoyment. We drink to drunkenness because we are emotionally stressed. We are emotionally waylaid by this life. And the way in which we are coping with such stress and emotional uh, turmoil in our lives is we go to alcohol as a stimulant or a having with its numbing effect so that we might avoid the emotional stress. And in doing so, we are circumventing the true Savior who is our, the Savior of our difficulties. He is the one who brings comfort. He is the one who uh, is our refuge and strength. If you read throughout the Psalms, you'll be reminded that it's the Word of God that is to comfort our hearts in emotional stress. The psalmist David doesn't want you to, to lend to drunkenness and, 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 be, and live in such a way where you are intoxicated to impair the emotional difficulty you are facing. The Word of God does that for you. It is your refuge. It is your strength. Paul talks about intoxication and or drunkenness in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and he, he uses it in the way that, that it should be used. It is symbolic of darkness and the night. And he uses it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 through 8. He says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you all you are all sons of light and sons of the day. You are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet and the hope of salvation. Now the metaphor or the correlation that's being made here is that as people who have um, encountered the glory of God, we are sons of light. He is our hope. He is our strength. And Paul is related drunkenness to the darkness and the sin that is represented in the world that oftentimes happens at night. So in other words, drunkenness is categorized with unrighteous living and belongs with activities of darkness and evil. Sobriety, 
in this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is a metaphor for Paul calling us to be alert to the coming of Christ and the faithful service that we give to him. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 reminds us that overindulging in, in alcohol that leads to drunkenness circumvents our hope that we have in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. If you were a teenager in youth group, you heard this passage a lot, right? Do not be drunk with wine, which is dispensation, dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And what, what point that Paul is trying to make here is that the Holy Spirit, as people who are sons of the light... That categorizes our life. We are living in such a way to honor Christ, being filled with the Spirit, seeking His Word, being controlled by Him, not being controlled by something that has temporary effects like alcohol. So again, we're not talking about people who got drunk once in college. We're talking about people who are putting their faith and their hope in temporary substances like alcohol or greed and materialism or sexual gratification. These people are representative of practicing lifestyles that do not belong in the kingdom of God. And finally, the second emotional sin is reviling. Just as much as drunkenness doesn't reflect self-control, just as much as adultery doesn't reflect self-control, so reviling doesn't reflect self-control in the life of a believer. It's just a self-control over the tongue. Reviling means to mock, to ridicule, to insult someone. It's using words that promote hate, tearing them down instead of building them up. Revilers and slanderers are always incorporated with evil in the Bible. King David, he sought refuge in the Lord for those who slandered his name. Paul's ministry consisted of his enemies of the church slandering him and reviling his authority as apostle. As an apostle, Jesus himself, in his humiliation, experienced the great slandering during his public trials before the Jews and the Romans. They mocked him and ridiculed him for his power. They called out to him on the cross, come down if you're truly the son of God, come down as his head wrapped in uh, thorns to, to mock his kingly authority, sat upon his head, tearing into his flesh. All these things display a heart of ridicule. And when we seek to tear down our enemies and ridicule people that we disagree with, we are not reflecting hearts of the kingdom. We are reflecting hearts of not belonging to the kingdom. Instead, Peter gives us the challenge. Jesus says that we're going to be reviled. He promises the the persecution would come and that people will slander us as Christians But how are we to respond to our enemies who do such things? We're to pray for them. We're not to respond with reviling. Peter says that. While being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return, but while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So as Jesus so did not revile his persecutors, so we also are called as people who are regenerate and transformed and are seeking to live righteously and justly in this world. Even when we are slandered, we are called not to slander in return. Instead, we would consider the opposite effect. And we've tried to look at these things throughout this list. We want to hold to the covenant of marriage. We want to support the design of God and gender identity as a man being born a man is a man and a woman being born a woman is a woman. 
We want to trust and be content in the provision and the purposes of God so that we don't lend to greediness, but we trust God to do his will and his work in our lives and to give us what we need. And here in this passage, we want to live in such a way that we speak good of others. Building people up. Avoiding the temptation to slander and to discourage and to speak negatively. Because as heirs of the kingdom, we want to reflect godliness in such a way that people might see Christ's compassion in us. Now we have to be careful here. Because this is the argument for people in the church who stand for truth and are considered people who speak hate. Oh, well, you're speaking hate if you stand up against homosexuality. Don't believe that lie, church. Truth is truth founded in love. When you speak the truth of God's word, you are speaking words of love. Now, be careful how you speak those words. But by, by standing firm upon how God has commanded us to live and how he has made us, you are not speaking hate. You are just disagreeing with those who are rebels of heart. You are actually honoring Christ by standing upon what his word teaches. So we've looked at these vices. We understand in the context of Paul's ministry in Corinth how he is concerned about the people in Corinth. Many of those he's already described These people who are guilty of sexual sins, we've looked in chapter 5 at the man who was guilty of such sexual sin. We even understand that greed and drunkenness were also parts of the sins he found present in the Corinthian church. In chapter 11, we'll see his command not to abuse the Lord's Supper because the people there were rich Greedy, exploiting others, and even getting drunk with the wine at the Lord's Supper. But now we want to end this series and this sermon with hope. And I want us to be encouraged in chapter 6, verse 11. But such were some of you. Those are powerful words and a testimony of Christ changing us. Because let's be honest, a lot of us were were living lives descriptive of these things. I know I was. If you're honest, you were too. Maybe you never committed adultery physically, but you were committing adultery in your heart. Every human on this earth does. Struggles with the lust of the flesh. You were guilty, Jesus says, of adultery. No one can sit in here today and say they've never had a greedy thought or a greedy action in their life seeking to boost and enhance their financial gain when they didn't need it. But such were some of you. And this is the dividing line of the kingdom is that we understand that Jesus Christ came into this world sinless To live a perfect life, to give his life as a ransom for sinners. He died, he was buried, he was risen from the grave victoriously. So that we might in his power and strength and by his grace also be born again. Be born again to a living hope. Be born again to to, to, uh, experience death to our old life of sin and raised to new life in Christ. But such were some of you, past tense. And when it's in the past tense, it means that it's completed. So that we no longer have to live with the guilt of our past. Jesus took the guilt and the shame on the cross. He bore that wrath. He bore that shame. He bore that guilt. So whatever vices on this list that may have been found present in your life, Jesus took that sin upon himself 
And you have been redeemed if you have trusted in him. And he gives us three past tense, present active verbs here that give us some clarification and confidence for the completed work of Christ. First, he tells us that if you've trusted in Christ, you have been cleansed by the name of Jesus and his spirit. We understand that cleansing to be that removal of sin, the effects of sin, the stain and the guilt of sin. The debt has been paid by the Lord Jesus. There's no longer any reason for us to hold on to such guilt and shame. We can remember it because it makes grace even sweeter. Sin no longer has power over our lives because we have been cleansed and released from the bondage of sin. And so when we struggle in this old man, this flesh that rises up, we know that Christ will empower us to overcome it as we strive to turn away from sin by faith and repentance. Cleansing is this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus Christ in the Gospels, when he he looks at the woman and he tells her her sins are forgiven? What a powerful statement. Do you realize that only God can forgive sins? For the Jewish people to hear Jesus say that, that was a, a declaration of his deity. That he was not just a mere man and a prophet. He was able to wipe away sins, to cleanse those who were unpure. And so Jesus Christ giving his life as the living God has the power to forgive sins. And he forgives those who call upon his name by faith. Friend, I hope that you have trusted in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. And that you are living day by day, resting in that. So that you are not overwhelmed with that guilt, but you are saying, Jesus has saved me. Oh, Satan wants to say, but do you remember when? And your response is, Jesus has saved me. Jesus has cleansed me. This is why, church, we, we don't sprinkle, we dunk when we come to Christ. Because literally the water is a symbolism of the fully immersed person under the water, dying to sin and being raised to Jesus Christ in new life. This is why that baptism follows our conversion. It is a symbolic reality of spiritually what's happened to us already. Not what's going to happen, hopefully. We reflect that in the beautiful ordinance of baptism, knowing that we have been clean. Secondly, made holy or sanctified. Being set apart and made holy is in the past tense because Jesus Christ makes us holy. He sets us apart in holiness when we come to Him by faith. You'll remember the old um, question that was asked if you ever participated in evangelism explosion. If you died today and you entered into heaven, why would God allow you into heaven? What would you say? What reason would you give to being there? And so many times we would hear, well, I did this and I did that. And I was able to do this. But fact, the church is fact, uh, the, the fact is, church, is that it's not about what we do, it's about what Jesus did. Jesus made us holy. Jesus, being fully God and man, obeyed the Father in every way, sinless in his life, never inherited sin from Adam, and he became the spotless and blameless sacrifice for sinners. So when he gives his life upon the cross, he ensures by his death and resurrection that you will be sanctified and you are sanctified. You can't enter into heaven by making yourself clean. You can't make yourself holy any more than you can make yourself born again. Given to ourselves, we will gratify our flesh, we will worship idols, we will be greedy and cheat and steal so we can gain advantage. 
But Christ changes that when we are born again. We're called out of darkness into marvelous light. We're cleansed and made holy by his sacrifice. And lastly, we are declared righteous. Or, in other words, we are justified. Do you know that your sin carries a legal debt before God? That you and I are guilty? Not only are we stained by sin, not only can we not enter into the presence of God because of our sin and, our, and, and His contrasting holiness, but we are guilty before a just judge and deserving of the full wrath of God. And those who are unrighteous, who are not heirs of the kingdom, they suppress the truth and righteousness. But when we put our faith in Jesus, we are declared righteous because the full wrath of God against our sin was placed upon Jesus. And he bore that wrath for us. He didn't sweep it under the rug. He became the substitutionary atoning sacrifice for us. He was your substitute if you have put your faith in Him. You are declared innocent even though you were once a rebel. You are called a son and daughter of God even though you were once a vagabond. God has made you and given you what you did not deserve. These are all gifts of His grace. When you put your trust in Him, Christ imputes His righteousness to you. Stuart read this a couple weeks ago. He made Him who knew no sin to do what? Be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's this divine transfer of we receive Christ's perfection and righteousness. And in turn, He takes upon Himself our sin debt So therefore, by faith, we trust in God's promises, we rest in those things, and we are justified before a living God. So this is the message of Christmas, church. These are the gifts of Christmas that we should enjoy as heirs of the kingdom. Listen, you may not be financially wealthy, but in Jesus Christ, you have the wealth of heaven. In Jesus Christ, you have possessions that are eternal, that never fade. In Christ, you have experienced what only Christ could give us and accomplish for us. You have received those things because He chose you to receive them. It's a beautiful picture at this Christmas season to go to those we love or even someone we don't know. And bless them with a gift. And we give that gift in love, not in, in some kind of payment, and not in some kind of um, uh, you know, trying to proposition them to do something for us. We are giving that, not acting, asking for anything in return. And I hope and pray that when we do these things, we do them in a reflection of what Christ has accomplished for us as heirs of the kingdom. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So I close with this today. We sit here in this building, we have people online, and and, and Paul writes these things so that we might be very clear as to who belongs to the kingdom. And you're rather these rebels of the kingdom and and you have rejected Christ and you are living for your own glory and you are wallowing in your own gratifying lusts and sin or you are seeking holiness because of what Christ has done. You live in such a way that honors Him because Jesus Christ has made you an heir of His kingdom through His sacrifice. And so the question you need to ask yourself and examine is, which one of these two types of people is reflective of me? Have I been changed and transformed? Am I just going through the motions? Or has Christ really saved me and transformed me? Am I living in such a way that when these old sins rise up, I'm seeking repentance and faith? 
Or am I just wallowing in sin, enjoying the cares and the satisfactions of the world, not truly wanting to seek Christ and love him? And church, my prayer is if you have examined your heart and you see that Christ is not your Savior, that you belong to the unrighteous who are expelled from the kingdom and will face the wrath of God, I pray that today you would believe in Christ, that you would rest in Him. And if you belong as an heir to the kingdom, then you have much to celebrate as we sing these songs at Christmas time and throughout the year, being reminded of all that Jesus has done. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Father, thank you for the great work of Christ. Thank you for reminding us how clearly we can see the evidences of those who belong to your kingdom and those who do not. Father, our churches all around the world have membership roles and names listed of people who have made professions of faith, but they are not belonging to the kingdom. They've never truly been regenerate. They've never truly been saved. And there's others, Father, around our world that are living under your rule and reign, and they are rebels of heart. And we pray, Father, that they would come to see and hear the beauty of Christ and the gospel, and they would be saved. That we would be faithful to take the message of the gospel to them in love and grace, standing upon truth, not trying to water it down or change what it says, but just firmly trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to change their hearts as he's changed many of ours here today. But God, we pray that your word would have a great effect on our loved ones and our friends and family who clearly, as we've been reminded of in these lessons, in these sermons, Father, that are they're living unrighteously. They are rejecting your name and your word. They've been led astray, and they're gratifying those things which displease you, and we pray you would rescue them, God. Save them from their sins. Let them see Christ as beautiful and satisfying as we do. And Father, for us as heirs of the kingdom, I pray that our hearts and minds would constantly be reflective of all that Christ has done, and it would fill us with joy. That with the knowledge of Him, we would be filled with joy. We would celebrate all that He has done. And that we would seek and strive to live holy lives for Your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.